An atrocity. What is Putin thinking? He took out a hospital, a hospital where there were babies, the maternity ward. This is, this is a war crime. This is the worst. This is why war is to be avoided at all costs. Only go in if it's absolutely necessary. This was not necessary. Take a look. The Geneva Conventions, international law, and human decency prohibit all of this, but it's happening. And how's America going to help? Kamala Harris to the rescue. No kidding, here she is, arriving in Poland. I think the thing about her is she just loves to fly on airplanes, especially Air Force Two. It makes her feel important. She loves flying places and not doing anything when she gets there. Whether it's the root causes in Central America, the border, and she doesn't go to the actual border, and now Poland. Uh, her MO is not producing results. So there's that. Meanwhile, Zelensky is basically begging us for help. So when will this decision be made? Listen, we have a war. We do not have time for all these signals. This is not ping pong. This is about human lives. We ask once again, solve it faster. Do not shift the responsibility. Send us planes. Well, we're not sending the planes, and we are shifting responsibility, the Americans, under Joe Biden. And by the way, the State of the Union speech, it was uh, about a week ago. Doesn't it feel like it was 50 years ago? Nobody can remember a damn thing. I do remember he did not speak directly to the people of Ukraine, did not speak directly to the people of Russia or to Putin. It was just a... Check in the block. If you want to get a world leader to do something, you've got to be strong, you've got to be direct, and you've got to be specific. This is how George H.W. Bush got Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait back in 1990, 1991, remember? Our objectives in the Persian Gulf are clear. Our goals defined and familiar. Iraq must withdraw from Kuwait completely, immediately, and without condition. <laughs> Kuwait's legitimate government must be restored. The security and stability of the P Persian Gulf must be assured, and American citizens abroad must be protected. Hey, by the way, Kuwait wasn't even a member of NATO. <laughs> and look what we were willing to do back then. And of course, Desert Shield followed by Desert Storm. And Saddam Hussein was ejected from Kuwait. That was a legit war. I support it. You know, I have not a very high 
regard for George W. Bush, the war that he engineered was a colossal waste of time and a very dangerous and catastrophic one that we're still dealing with the consequences. But George H.W. Bush, the father, you know, it was a righteous war and he was worthy of the presidency. He had done big things with his life. And when it came to actually managing the alliance, this guy worked it. He legitimately knew all the players around the world and was able to accomplish something. Meanwhile, how did Joe Biden put it just a couple of weeks ago? You heard what George H.W. Bush said, clear, unequivocal. What's Biden's tone? I'm not so sure he has uh, is certain what he's gonna do. My guess is he will move in he has to do something. My guess, he's got to do something. We'll react. I mean, we're just the United States. We're a bystander here now with Joe Biden. By the way, we really are. He can't even get his calls returned. Joe Biden, the president of the United States today, called Saudi Arabian leadership and the UAE, and they would not take his call. This is what Joe Biden was supposed to be good at, world affairs. He knows all these people, right? I'm going to say something self-serving. I'm supposed to know an awful lot about foreign policy. I've known every major world leader in the last 40 years. I've had a lot of experience internationally. And uh, I mean, not the good or bad, just I have. I've chaired the Foreign Relations Committee. I've been deeply involved. One thing, I've been dealing with world leaders a long, long time. And by the way, I've, get, I've traveled the world. I've met with all the major world leaders and I'm gonna to continue to meet with them. Look, most important thing dealing with foreign leaders in my experience, and I've dealt with an awful lot of them over my career, is just know the other guy. And the other guy gets to know you. Putin took a real good look at Joe Biden over the years and he watched his decline. We've all seen the decline. And as you know, I'm no fan of uh, Bill Barr. He's selling a book, but there's an interesting observation he made. As soon as Biden won, I thought he would see this as a window of opportunity to grab what he wanted because I think he viewed Biden as weak. And then Biden proceeded to, with that ugly withdrawal from Afghanistan, killing America's energy independence, which really increased Russians' leverage dramatically. And he didn't put in uh, military hardware that would have made Russia think twice. This is common sense, actually. This is no great insight, but it's interesting. And the American people have been saying that all along. Take a look. Uh, what is it? 58% of Americans believe that Biden's policies are to blame for this invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Also, overwhelmingly, we believe that this would not be happening if President Trump were still in office. And by the way, you saw Bill Barr there. I'm furious at him over the book. What's up with the slouch? Okay, sit up for crying out loud. You're on television. You're not a jiffy lube. All right, one other thing that's not gotten much attention at all. Um, back in November, an agreement was signed uh, between Ukraine and the United States. It's called the Ukraine U.S.-Ukraine Charter on Strategic Partnership, November 10th of 2021. Now, they had a big press conference and everything. Tony Blinken uh, talked about this partnership and how we're solidly with you. It sounds good, but guess who it provokes? The Soviets. I'm sorry, the Russians. Bad habit. Take a look. The United States' commitment to Ukraine's independence, sovereignty, territorial integrity is ironclad. Uh, and that's something that 
I said again to Dimitro today, it's a position that will not change. We stand with Ukraine. We continue to support de-escalation, de-escalation, excuse me, in the region uh, and diplomatic resolution to the conflict in eastern Ukraine. Uh, the updated U.S.-Ukraine Charter on Strategic Partnership uh, that the Foreign Minister and I uh, signed today affirms the United States' unwavering commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. So it may sound like bureaucratic uh, mumbo jumbo, but I am told by high level intelligence officials that this really infuriated the Russians. And that document, take a look at it. You know, <laughs> diplomacy is an art, they say. Emphasize unwavering commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity. The Russians are provoked here. Hold Russia accountable for aggression as well as its continuing malign behavior. Okay, the United States is not and will never recognize Russia's attempted annexation of Crimea and reaffirms its full support for negotiating a diplomatic resolution to the Russia-led armed conflict. And this is what really did it. The United States supports Ukraine's right to decide its own future foreign policy course, free from outside interference, including with respect to Ukraine's aspirations to join NATO. Now, for decades, foreign policy experts like Henry Kissinger have been warning about Ukraine and NATO, that it could be provocative. And by the way, look, these can be your goals, but to formalize it and put it in a document like this and have a press conference, that sets our adversaries on fire. And this apparently didn't. I noticed Tony Blinken, by the way, he never gets asked about this document. He seems a little bit, uh, what's the word? Guilty, guilty actually. I feel like he knows he screwed up big time and the world is living with the results, and sooner or later, everybody's going to know. Back to that State of the Union address from last week. Again, it seems like a decade and a half ago. A couple of things that we did not see that were, could have been easily said. He should have spoken to the Russian people and said, our conflict is not with you, it's with your leaders. He didn't say that. That's generally kind of a given, right? Because with an absence of that message, Russians are being persecuted to some degree. You might not think it's a big deal, but these people don't feel good. Take a look. Even the New York Times is documenting this. New York's Russian restaurants, they feel the war's impact. They, they really do. And there's one restaurant in New York. I went to it a long time ago. It's a Russian, uh, how do you call it? Sandovar. And um, I, I was there years ago. It's a nice place. But look at what they're going through and other restaurants, people in the Russian community. This is real. Within 24 hours of the invasion, the restaurant was dealt with a steep drop in business and they faced backlash, including hate mail and phone calls. One of our servers got a call three times yesterday calling us Nazis and fascists and everything like that. So that's that's never nice. But customers like Rita and Igor, originally from Ukraine, came specifically to support the restaurant. Probably a lot of restaurants, Russian restaurants struggling now, but they really don't have anything to do with the government there. They probably need to change their name to Ukrainian Horilka. Von Schatz said it's not the first time he's heard that suggestion, but that changing the name, despite the current challenges, is not an option. It was Russian Samovar before there was a Russian Federation or Ukraine. It was built out of the cloth of the Soviet Union. I keep trying to tell people that just because we have Russian in the name, uh, they've 
they're vilifying all of us pretty much and we're not for the war we don't want the war it's a message that customers supporting the restaurant also want to spread it's it's a war that is horrible it's something we have to do to support ukrainians in every way but targeting russians in new york is not the way to do it Great report, I think. A local news reporter here in New York City. Um, after 9-11, George W. Bush ran to the mosque to say our problem is not with Islam, it's with uh, Osama bin Laden. I thought that was appropriate. Uh, let's see. I thought this was ridiculous, actually, when Nancy Pelosi ran to Chinatown and said, well, you remember that spectacle. Um, so why aren't people reaching out to the Russians? Why aren't they saying they're not involved in this? I actually think it's because their skin is white and they don't have much cachet anymore in America. Stay with us. What do you think of the news coverage from Ukraine? Huh? How are they doing over there? I'm not so impressed, actually, and we are going to talk about it. Check out the Newsmax Daily Podcast with me, Rob Carson. You get daily news, insightful commentary, and believe it or not, comedy. Check it out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or at NewsmaxTV.com slash podcast. All I can, I can say is that the fake news just doesn't get it, do they? They don't. And I don't care where they are. The fake news could be in Washington, D.C. or Kiev. Yes, Kiev, as they say. Uh, I haven't been impressed. There have been some exceptions. This guy's always on his balcony, always trying to correct uh, anchors back in New York. Uh, same with this guy, also at Fox. Uh, you just There's something about them. They're not out in the field. They're not seeing the action. Sometimes, but for the most part, no. The coverage is weak. We've all seen it. What we're relying on are those social media accounts. And when we do watch these reporters, if you really watch, listen to what they're saying and listen to what they're talking about, they're exaggerating. And um, they love to pick fights, by the way, with the anchors, all right? They just get a little bit uh, touchy about what's said. Even they, they wait during the commercial break. They're listening. And, uh, well, this happened. I can't help but feel that this is a lot like a, a, other stories that we've gone through in the digital age in which an image is taken and then played over and over and over again to to create some kind of emotional response out of you because that makes a profit for news companies, right? Speaking as someone on the ground, I want to say that this is not the media trying to drum up some emotional response. This is absolutely what's happening. Well, he's speaking on the ground, not necessarily where everything is happening. He is several hundred miles from Kharkiv. He's in Kiev on a balcony. That's fine. Uh, there's some of that that has to be done. But it is a significant distance from where a lot of the action is taking place. Also, you saw the hospital bombing in uh, Maripol. That is also a long way away, a, a, an almost a 12-hour drive. Look, these guys have their challenges, but I'd like to see more on-the-ground reporting. There has been some of it, not much. A lot of them go all the way over there and look at their phones to follow the news, okay? Just like we're doing here. By the way, we got a great reporter. We got two of them, actually. We got uh, Sarah Williamson and Chuck Holton. Have you seen this guy, Chuck Holton? Look, there he is. He's carrying somebody. This is a Newsmax employee helping out a guy who was wounded. Chuck Holton, we're gonna be checking in with him uh, later in the week. He's pretty amazing. 
And uh, look, I speak from experience. I have reported from war zones. It's not fun. It's pretty intense. But what was happening in previous wars, like in Iraq, we were embedded. We were right there with uh, American troops. Now, I understand who wants to embed with the Russian troops. That's probably not a good idea right now. But something. We're getting too much reporting from hotel balconies and There, I said it. I'm not impressed. Let me know what you think. All right, on to this. More people from the Trump administration are trying to cash in. That is Stephanie Grisham. Remember her? Maybe you don't. She was a press secretary who never held a press briefing. She wrote a book a while ago, and now she is uh, guest hosting The View. Now, what makes her eligible? Well, she hates Trump. She turned on Trump, and uh, that's why they let her sit at the table but they still abuse her. I have to ask, why did it take um, an insurrection to get you to quit? It's a great, fair question. Um, I, so, what did, excuse me, what did you believe in? His policies? Because you know he was a sexist, misogynist. You heard the, the tapes the about tape, grabbing yep. women and I, all that. I sure did. So, come in and treat our country, hopefully, like a business. But you know he's a fake businessman. I learned that. Well, she knows I it did, now. I didn't. <laughs> but you must have known at some point, sorry well, to interrogate saying, you. No, that, you can interrogate that, me that, that you well. screwed up. I did well, screw yeah, up. I don't understand how it takes two impeachments for someone to say, man, maybe I'm on the wrong team here. Okay, that's a really fair and balanced panel. And the person they're talking to also hates Trump. So once they get over the preliminary introduction, she says uh, stuff that they want to hear. She's already in with the swamp. Now she wants in with Hollywood. Take a look. He started saying the quiet part out loud. The discrimination became transparent and blatant, and this is the result of it. Well, and this one's personal to me, and you bring up a great point because of my former boss. Um, my, I have a 14-year-old son who is gay, recently came out as gay, which I have his permission to talk to about say, this, yeah. by the way. Um, and he didn't want to tell his friends where I worked. Yeah. You know, he, he was like, he was ashamed of where I worked, rightfully so. Rightfully so. She was working at the Trump White House. He was rightfully ashamed. She should have, if that's how she felt, she should have, could have resigned a long time ago. By the way, bringing up a 14-year-old who I guess was 12 at the time, he's already convinced he's gay, that's inappropriate. That's, by the way, your family business. And it's exploitive, let's face it. And then this. He really admired Putin. And I saw that firsthand. I saw him say to Putin, hey, I'm going to be tough on you in front of the cameras. You understand. And once the cameras are gone, we'll have a real conversation. He said that. He said that. Yeah. Um, That was him going tough Mm. on Putin. Well, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Um, He said that. He said that. You know who else said that? Barack Obama. Barack Obama said, I'm going to be one way in public and another way behind the scenes. It happens in life, all right? This is my last election, basically. Yeah. After my election, I have more flexibility. Yeah. And this I transmit this information to Vladimir and understand what One way in public, another way in private. Don't listen to what I say. I really think this way. Politics. It's a crummy game, but hey. She's not the only one, this Stephanie Grisham. Do you remember Alyssa Ferrer? All these people, they had big, sweet jobs in government, 
And now they're cashing in and they'll do anything to be on television, I guess. Um, she went on The View as well a while back. The View. Who? You're going to sell your soul to be on this show? I guess the answer is yes. You know who this person is. Yeah. He's the person that is grabbing by the you know what. Well, and you're working for him. I didn't have any illusions about who the president was. So I was, I should go back further. I was Vice President Pence's press secretary for two years. So I was tangentially working with the Trump White House, different building, but serving a very different man. Well, you're not working for Darth Vader, but you're a stormtrooper. <laughs> That's actually very well said. Um, <laughs> what does it say to everybody else who worked there? Okay. She got hers. She's selfish. She was in it for herself. Mr. President, Donald Trump, I'm speaking to, please don't hire any of these swamp characters next time around. And I think there's going to be a next time around. I really, really do. Alyssa, oh, by the way, the swamp (laughs) and Hollywood, they'll never forgive you. Uh, Put them down for a moment. Show me Sonny after she was uh, done asking her question. Look look at that. You're not convincing her. She'll, She'll never trust you. They'll never welcome you back. And uh, Alyssa and Stephanie, was it really worth it? Is being on TV all that much? I mean, it's okay, but really, to sell out like this. You know, I really like the guy who has a show before mine, Sean Spicer. He did not sell out. He was for Trump. There he is with Trump, with Mike Pence. And now he's got a show. He has not changed his colors. He's the same guy, great guy. And I watch him every night at six o'clock. And you should, too. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Real heroes. Real conflict. Real threats. Real heart. Now there's a place America gets its news. No agenda. Just the facts. Newsmax. Real news for real people. So we talked about how Putin made note of what happened on January 6th and is using it against Biden. He has reduced America's status because of how we treated those January 6ers, so many in prison who didn't break anything, who didn't hurt anybody, and shooting Ashley Babbitt unarmed. You know what else he's exploited? Black Lives Matter. Oh, boy. The whole world was taking notes as Democrats embraced that crazy, corrupt movement And they're using it against us to this day. America has just recently went through a, well, grievous uh, chain of events after a certain African-American individual was uh, killed and an entire movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, appeared. We've seen pogroms. We've seen, you know, looting and violations and riots. We sympathize with the Americans, but we do not want for the same thing to happen on the Russian soil and we'll do anything possible to prevent this. The organization is in question publicly has called for uh, riots and public disorder. It has openly instructed instructed people on how to how to make Molotov cocktails, so to use them against the law enforcement. Yes, they did all of those things. And what did Democrats do while Black Lives Matter and others were promoting how to make Molotov cocktails and uh, tearing this country apart? Joe Biden was riding the wave, (laughs) riding this wave to the White House. He thought he could exploit it, and he did. I mean, look at this, taking a knee. 
Is there nothing he wouldn't do to achieve power? It's kind of amazing, isn't it? So that brings us to January 6th. Something else they're trying to exploit. Again, a riot is fine if you're on the left, but the one riot, the one riot where they didn't agree with them or didn't like the protesters, it's the most, it's the gravest threat to American democracy. And that brings me to Enrique Tario, the Proud Boy uh, chairman, I believe his title was. Again, he already went to jail for many months, I think five months in prison for this burning a Black Lives Matter flag. Can you imagine? Again, if only that were an American flag, he would have been fine. He just chose the wrong flag to burn. So he was arrested uh, early yesterday morning, and the FBI gave a heads up to news crews. Come, we're going to arrest this guy. Here's where he lives. How else would a news crew from local Channel 6 just happen to be there? FBI agents raiding Henry Enrique Torrio's Miami home yesterday. He surrendered without incident. The arrest comes after federal prosecutors charged him with conspiracy and connection to the January 6th insurrection. The 38-year-old was not in Washington, D.C. when it happened. But the feds say he played a key role in... All right. And then uh, they kept him at his own house for a while. And look at how they moved him like he's some sort of high value target. I mean, look at these guys. We got FBI agents with tactical gear on taking him in. They gave the media a heads up. I don't like that. So I went through the indictment again. I think they have a really tough case to make here. He was not in Washington, D.C. He could only see what we could see on television, which, oh, by the way, wasn't that much on January 6th. You couldn't see that much. I believe we have footage from that day. If he was watching what we were watching, um, (laughs) he did not know, could not know the extent of what was happening there. We'll see what happens. I think this is a weak case. And by the way, reading this indictment, it's clear that they had a lot of informants and maybe even FBI agents in the crowd before anything happened. This could have been prevented, it looks like, to me. It could have been prevented. Why didn't they prevent it? Why did they put the brakes on this thing? All right, stay with us. Um, You've seen some of the reporting again from Ukraine. Have you been impressed, quite frankly, in the middle of a war, watching some guy on a hotel balcony? It doesn't have to be that way. Quite frankly, I know this firsthand. When I rode into Baghdad in 2003, uh, we were with the troops. And uh, yes, we were in harm's way. Something bad could happen. When we come back, Rick Leventhal joins us, longtime Fox News correspondent and anchor. There's Rick. Rick went all the way to Baghdad with the Marines. He did an awesome job. And in some ways, I think we're friends for life. We'll be right back with Rick Leventhal. A liberty-loving American takes on Washington, Hollywood, and the whole media establishment. He's Chris Salcedo. Join his fight. Tune in to The Chris Salcedo Show every weekday afternoon on Newsmax. Well, I don't think they make war correspondents like this anymore. That's Rick Leventhal, longtime correspondent for the Fox News Channel. He's been in every hotspot you can think of including, and I think most importantly, most significantly, the invasion of Iraq back in 2003. 
Rick and I were in Iraq at the same time. He was with the Marines. I was with the Army. How did that happen? Uh, Rick Leventhal joins us now from Los Angeles. Rick, thanks to uh, you and your family for making you available. How are you, buddy? I'm great, Greg. It's, it's great to hear your voice. I actually just wrote about you. I'm um, working on a book, and I talked about you in a chapter about the embed, uh, you being with the Army and beating me to Baghdad. <laughs> well, I uh, thank you. I like how this is uh, sounding so far in the book. Rick, <laughs> uh, you did a spectacular job over there in Iraq. We're going to go into you. detail about what happened there. But I am wondering, you've been watching, like we all have, the coverage from Ukraine. I've been seeing a lot of guys standing on balconies talking. Um, I'll yeah. tell you how I feel in a moment. What do you think of the coverage, by and large, that we're seeing from Ukraine? I think I already know how you feel about this, Greg, um, and I think we agree. You can't really cover a war from a hotel. You can, but you're not able to fully report what's happening on the ground. The only way to really report on what's happening in a war is to be at or near the front lines where you can witness for yourself what's going on and report on. I understand the safety concerns. I understand people not wanting to put their people in harm's way. But if you want to tell the real story and the whole story and the full story, then you need to be in the action or close to it. And, you know, I, I heard Benjamin Hall say uh, we have more video than we know what to do with. But what are the sources of that video? How do you verify what is on that video? How do you know that what you're putting on television is accurate or fully reflects the scene on the ground when that video was taken? It's, it's almost impossible. You kind of have to be there. And I noticed that he's also and they are also talking about cities that they are hundreds of miles away from. It's like right. I'm in New York. I can't cover what's going on in Chicago. Some of these cities are that far away almost from him as Chicago is to me. And I don't think the viewer is sufficiently aware of that. Well, one of the greatest things, as you know, Greg, about our embed experience was that we were with the guys who were doing the fighting. We were at the front lines or right near them, and we could see for ourselves what was happening on the ground and report on it. And that's what makes a real war correspondent, being in a war. And if you're in a hotel room, very comfortable, taking a shower and doing your hair and putting on a nice shirt and then going and standing in front of a camera hundreds of miles, in some cases, away from where the fighting is actually happening, you're not a war reporter. You're a hotel reporter. Uh, I agree. Now, listen, we did have the advantage and the benefit. Look, we were going in with the U.S. military. We were embedding with the U.S. military. They had great gear. I quite frankly thought they had the advantage over the Republican Guard. But but who knows? It, and it got pretty dicey at times. I don't know who these guys could embed with. I don't see them embedding with Putin's forces. Uh, I, I'd have to think long and hard personally about embedding with Ukrainian forces up against Russian yeah. forces. So. I, I it, it, it is a dilemma. And oh, by the way, yeah. there, there are plenty of people who are supplying the world with video, as Mr. Hall you, you know, mentioned. So there uh -huh. is that. So I guess I can kind of understand their reluctance. But let's face it, it's not what it used to be. Well, and then you see guys standing on balconies with their helmets on. And, you know, the fighting is far away from that, which is just almost equally ridiculous. You know, a couple of times I went to Libya during the uprising against Muammar Gaddafi, and we did not have the military there. We were not with Marines. We were trying to keep up with the rebel fighters who were fighting Gaddafi's army. And we were in a hotel, 
But every morning we'd get up super early and we'd get in the car and we would drive as close to the front lines as we could get. And that's how we would cover that war. We weren't with the troops, but we got as near to the troops as we could, as near to the fighting as we could. And we covered the war because we wanted to see what was happening. And we couldn't do that from 50 or 100 miles away. And Rick, something else I've noticed, um, some of these reporters now are openly challenging the anchors, you know, debating them about policy and about opinion. And quite frankly, I remember possibly, you know, getting razzed by the Fox and Friends crew and vice versa. But, yeah. you know, I, don't, I, I wouldn't try to get in Bill O'Reilly's ear and straighten him out about his opinion. And that's actually happening now. Well, I. Listen, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I have strong opinions, too, and I know you do as well. So if, if someone says something on the air that I think is wrong, I, I wouldn't hesitate to call them out on it. Um, I understand there's, you know, you need to respect the person who you're talking to, and I would and I do. But um, if I hear something that bothers me and I know differently from where I am, I'm going to go ahead and bring that up. I, you know, I, I always try to keep it real. So if there's something happening around me and what they say doesn't match what I know is to be true, then I'm going to bring that up. However, in this case, if the guy is in a hotel room hundreds of miles away from where something's happening that he says is happening, then I don't know. But um, I don't want to judge these people. They're, they're there because that's where they were sent and that's where they were put. And maybe they could push to move a little closer to the action. Maybe they're, they got pushed back. Like maybe they were like, no, you can't do that. I don't know. But it's, it's a very different experience. I can say that for sure. Sure. You know, and Rick, that's why, uh, quite frankly, you and I can have this conversation. We've been there. I do think it's incumbent on people like us and others who haven't been to war. You're allowed to question things. And just because somebody is in a certain region, it doesn't make them, you know, infallible. And I think that was a problem in Vietnam, actually. You had those correspondents like Morley Safer and others, and they were able to dictate the whole uh, the whole national conversation. Hey, uh, Rick, um, you always do keep it real. Can you give us a preview of the book that you're working on? You know what, Greg? I, I, I was only supposed to write 50,000 words, and I wrote 109,000 words. I don't know how I did it, um, but I'm covering Iraq, Afghanistan, 9-11, uh, Hillary's collapse at Ground Zero, uh, the decapitation of Danny Pearl, the day Dan, Dale Earnhardt died, the day Daytona 500, I was there. Um, my, 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 my rise from uh, humble beginnings to uh, senior correspondent, um, some other really compelling stories that I think people are really going to love, like chasing hurricanes. There are dozens of those. And I'm, I'm, I'm putting anecdotes in there that people have never heard before, stuff that happened behind the scenes, stuff that we could never report on television. But I'm really excited about the book, and I'm almost done with it, and uh, it'll be published, I think, early next year, like less than a year from now, right around the 20th anniversary of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, coincidentally. Uh, oh, excellent. Excellent. We look forward to it. Please come back, and I hope you put in the, the, the scene where you are, a uh, make a cameo in the movie The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. That better be in the book. It's actually not. <laughs> no, okay. The, and, you want to add that as an epilogue? I think it's terrific. Hey, by the way, uh, Rick, as we say goodbye, uh, there's somebody one day I hope you meet. His name is Chuck Holton. He's a reporter here at Newsmax, and uh, gosh, looks he rescued a uh, 96-year-old woman. Uh, I, at first, I thought wow. that was somebody. Yeah, he just and she was suffering and had all kinds of issues and he just picked her up and, and made it happen. So we're very wow. proud of, of Chuck Holton. Him. Yeah, Good yeah. Pretty wild. Good for you, Chuck. Thanks, Greg. <laughs> you bet, Rick. All the best. Take care and uh, be Bye. in touch. We'll be right back. Thanks.
Did you see this? A Ukrainian girl, 10, killed by drunken Russian soldiers. Drunken Russian soldiers. Moving on. This guy is a drunken Russian soldier, broke into a liquor store, drank half the store, and there he is, out cold. What else? We think liquor is a real problem over there, by the way. And back in 2014, Russian soldiers shot down an airliner over Crimea. It was a mistake, possibly a mistake uh, caused by alcohol abuse, a bunch of drunk, drunk soldiers playing with the weapon system. And look at this, the rate of alcoholism in Russia, over 20%. Could this be alcohol, vodka, impacting operations on the ground? I know it sounds crazy, but it's not. Scott Eulinger joins us, national security expert, a former CIA operations officer and former CIA station chief in Moldova. Sir, welcome back to Newsmax. How are you? Great to be back, Rick. Sir, I actually started wondering about this, and I, then I did some research, and uh, I'm told I'm not crazy that there are soldiers, they are drinking, and it is affecting their performance on the battlefield do you, can you back that up? I believe it's true. Historically, uh, Russian society has had a great deal of difficulty dealing with alcohol. And actually, uh, it's a little known fact that every year, uh, at least, I think it's at least 20,000 Russians die of alcohol poison. Now, that's a figure that's like 10 times that of any other industrialized nation. So that's a real problem. But I also think that some of the, the sources of the drunkenness of Russian forces in Ukraine is because of the depression that has set in where the Russian soldiers realize that their leadership has absolutely let them down. Uh, the Russians are sustaining tremendous losses in this 14-day campaign. Ukrainian estimates are about 9,000, and U.S. intelligence is very conservatively saying 4,000. So I'd say split the difference. I think you're looking at like 6,500 soldiers dead in 14 days of fighting. In comparison, in 20 years of fighting, U.S. forces in Afghanistan, we lost 2,500 in 20 years. And they're losing much greater in 14 days. So these soldiers, a lot of them are conscripts. They're, uh, they're newly, they're, have newly reported to the Army. Some of them were drilling in Belarus and had no idea they were going to be taking part in an invasion until their tanks crossed the border. They're seeing, uh, they're seeing incompetence at the operational level and they're being let down by their by their junior leadership and their senior leadership. And they're finding a ferocious Ukrainian army, which is using some of the state of the art weaponry that's given to them by the West, such as uh, anti-tank missiles, which are having about a 95 percent effectiveness rate against Russian tanks, as well as Stinger anti-air missiles. So these guys are seeking refuge in alcohol, I think because of the abysmal situation they're in. And plus the fact the Russian army hasn't really bothered to feed its troops very much. They're foraging in stores looking for food to eat. And of course, when they see alcohol, well, they're not gonna turn that down. Is the intelligence community, putting the alcohol issue aside for a moment, is the intelligence community surprised by how poorly the Russian military is performing? I mean, did they see this coming? Uh, I, I know a lot of folks, I, I personally, I'm shocked. And quite, I wonder if this should prompt the Biden administration to reevaluate. Perhaps we should send troops over there because it might be easier than we think. But number one, is the intelligence community surprised by all of this? I think the intelligence, the U.S. intelligence community and European intelligence services, I think, are surprised at this development. Uh, 
Putin has, has made a big show of modernizing his military after the 2008 invasion of Georgia, and that was somewhat effective. However, the endemic corruption within Russian society and in their military has obviously precluded a lot of these reforms from really taking root. And so what we're seeing is massive. We see uh, soldiers, Russian soldiers that were in Belarus prior to invasion were selling their own diesel fuel to make a few extra bucks. Now, that's typical in, in the Russian army and the Red Army before it. And so what we're seeing is this kind of corruption has continued, poor operational planning, poor coordination of air assets and ground assets. The, the Russian Air Force has not been flying that much, not only because of cloudy weather, but because of a lack of precision guided munitions and plus a fear that their own army anti-air missiles will shoot them down. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of show to the Russian army, but apparently there was a lot of rot that was not quite obvious to U.S. intelligence uh, before. Now you mentioned conscripts, by the way, and to me that's um, synonymous with draftees. But I think there's that's right. A, it is. Th but is there a difference? I mean, is it like a conscript is somebody they grab right off the street and you know three minutes later they're a soldier? Because right. uh, when you were when they were drafted, they still went to boot camp and all those kinds of things. So what what is that's a right. what what is a conscript in this context? They're really the same. Now, basically, I think you know a Russian army recruit is going to have less training than a U.S. army recruit. However, they have been trained, but for a lot of them, their first mission outside of Russia. Uh, in their perhaps their specialty was when they were sent to do um, operations in Belarus. And then it was sprung on them that, oh, surprise, you're crossing into uh, Ukraine where you're going to be immediately greeted with bread and salt and hailed as liberators. And that has not turned out to be the case. Another important thing to understand is that the Russian people, more than most Western populations, is controlled by television. Um, a much greater percentage of Russians obtain their information from television than any other society in Western Europe. Fully 80% of the Russian population is almost totally dependent on television. They're watching government-sponsored programs, and they actually believe a lot of these things. There are a lot of videos online of Ukrainians who are calling family in Russia who resolutely refuse to believe that their houses are being destroyed. This is, you know, aunt, aunt to nephew telling them, my house has been destroyed, and their relatives are not believing it because that is not what the government television is telling them. That is wild, totally wild. Scott Eulinger, thank you very much for your information, the insights, amazing. Former CIA operations officer, for, former CIA station chief in Moldova. Come back soon. I would love to ask you, by the way, maybe you can answer in 10 seconds, how, do you get, how did you get the job at the CIA? They don't exactly advertise, or do they? How did you get the job? How did you reach out, or did they reach out? How does it work? I actually applied for the job at the time and to my surprise was taken in. This is in the mid-90s when very few officers were taken in because in 1995, our troubles were supposed to be over. It was going yeah. to be a new epic and we were never going to have any problems after that. Well, we're glad you they took you. <laughs> I think they made the great, uh, great choice there. Scott Eulinger, to be continued. Thank you. We'll be right back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for watching. Stinchfield is next. We'll be back tomorrow.